0: Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in current. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut and who Whoever heard such beautiful words? Hadunabecho, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda the with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode has been sponsored by OU's Teach Coalition, who is encouraging everyone to go out and vote in the upcoming elections uh, next week, November 8th, 2022, the midterms elections, governor elections, turning out in all the states, a close election, and OU's Teach Coalition and its network of thousands of activists just like you are urging everyone to go out and vote. Um, I just want to elaborate on that point a second. The, like I said, there can be a few episodes of me examining the Jewish story in the United States, of pushing frontiers on the American landscape. In this current episode, we'll discuss immigration, um, which I've touched on in several different episodes in the, uh, in the past. Um, and for many who arrived during the time of immigration, they arrived in New York Harbor and were greeted, as is well known, by the Statue of Liberty and as is well known to every schoolchild on the pedestal of the... Statue of Liberty is a poem by a Jewish poetess, Emma Lazarus, called The New Colossus. And just to quote a few lines, which I'm sure are familiar to most people, but just for another reminder, uh, I'm just uh, ex- uh, you know, uh, excerpting a couple of lines from that poem. Not going to r- trouble you with the whole thing, obviously. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. And then later on, she says a very famous line, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, and so on and so on. And she wrote it on November second, 1883. This is the early years of the great immigration. No one at the time could imagine how many millions of huddled masses would arrive until the United States, of course, decided to shut its doors in 1924. But the freedom that the Jewish arrivals, the Jewish huddled masses, were, were they achieved by arriving in the country during that time was the freedom to practice their religion, the freedom to practice business, the freedom to have their education, which they didn't utilize the freedom right away, but they eventually did. And the way to preserve that freedom was by exercising their right in the democratic process by voting. And they did not, that generation of the immigrants, and possibly their children as well, they didn't take it for granted. And uh, neither should we. Uh, That's the tendency to sometimes take things for granted, but neither should we. And uh, it's not enough for the great community of listeners of Jewish History Soundbites to vote. It's important for everyone to encourage others as well within everyone's social circles and communities to raise awareness. And um, the uh, it's not important who one votes for as long as you vote. Uh, and for help, contact the voter hotline of OU's Teach Coalition at 646-459-5162. And you can see them online at teachcoalition.org slash vote. Uh, Today, like I started speaking about, I'm going to speak about uh, the Great Immigration. The Great Immigration is the immigration of millions of Jews, uh, two and a half million Jews approximately, of course the numbers are debatable, Um, between the years 1880-81 until 1924. 1944 is the end of the Great Immigration simply because... United States Congress passes a law that curtails it, um, and uh, and the the uh, and it doesn't exactly start in 1881. Just that's when it, it becomes greater. It probably starts in the 1870s already. There's not an exact year that we can say is the beginning of it. But the angle again, this is something I've spoken about in the past, and and it it may seem like a boring topic to some, but I want to. You know, focus on a unique angle, which I think is going to be interesting, um, is that it's a silent revolution. And I use the words a silent revolution uh, based on a book by an Israeli researcher, actually, ironically, Gur Al-Roi. And uh, his book in Hebrew, obviously, Hamapichash Ketan, there's obviously, obviously tons more material in English on this topic. There's books and books and books about the great immigration. I just happened... The latest one I read it happened to have been this one, and he had a unique perspective on it. And, um, and it's, it's, um, it's the silent revolution, because this is a revolution without war, without violence, without an, a political platform, uh, without a, you know, a, a, a class struggle or, or anything like that. And it's not much of an ideology either. And it's a grassroots revolution. It's done by the masses. And it's not, you know, directed or engineered or socially engineered in any way from above. It, it's completely from bottom up. And uh, that's what makes it so unique. And that's what I'm going to elaborate on. Now, there's all kinds of aspects of immigration that are not covered in many of the main books and a lot of literature on the topic, or when we talk about the topic. There's internal migration. When Jews moved from place to place during that time, I'm talking about during the late 19th century, early 20th century, and that's sort of the focus of the times on immigration. Um, internal migration means m- moving from place to place in the same country. In Russia, for instance, moving um, to bigger cities, moving the, there's the urbanization is a form of migration. In the United States, you had that also. You had you had sec- what they call the second generation. Migration was from the cities to suburbia, right, in the post-war, after World War II, or from New York and Chicago to Miami and L.A., also the product of the 1950s. So there's this internal migration um, that exists There's urbanization, which I mentioned. There's immigration to more obscure places around the world, meaning we talk primarily about the immigration to the United States because that was 90% of the Jewish immigration. And we can mention a few other countries as well. Um, And, and, you know, like there's to England and to Western Europe and to to Canada, Australia and South Africa and and to the land of Israel, of course. Uh, That's also part of the story as well. But there's even to some more obscure places. There's to the Far East, to the city of Harbin in in China, or to Shanghai. Um, And way before the Polish refugees there, among them the Mary Yeshiva, arrived there in World War II, there's already from Russia during the time of the Great Immigration. In in, the early 1900s, there's several thousand Russian Jews who don't go to New York. They go to Shanghai, China. And they're there for 40 years before the Polish refugees come at the beginning of World War II. So there's these more obscure places of immigration as well, which makes it more interesting. There's emigration we spoke about from Russia, from Eastern Europe. That's the main story. But what about the emigration from from countries of origin that aren't the usual ones on the list? From countries in North Africa and the Middle East, from Morocco to Yemen... There are there are Jews migrating from those countries as well. And how does it happen that it's at the same exact time that Jews are moving from Russia? Obviously, it's a greater scale from Russia because there's more Jews there. But it's an interesting, because everyone's on the move, it seems. Not only that, but it's the greater context of immigration to the United States during that time by by the world, by the non the general population, non Jews. It's Asians, Italians, especially Italians, Irish, Germans, Poles, um, and anyone else who is during this era of unrestricted uh, immigration to the United States. So the Jews are just a small drop in the bucket of the millions and millions of. Of general immigrants, of non-Jewish immigrants that are coming to the country at the time, and therefore it's worth examining in the greater context as well. Now, the I had several previous episodes of uh, um, that were that taught, discussed immigration. So, um, you know, I speak to, I spoke about it on uh, quite some time ago, a couple of years ago. Uh, earl, one of the earliest episodes in the. Jewish History Soundbites was called Streets Paved with Gold, the Mass Wave of Jewish Immigration. I mentioned it also on the Houston episode because of the Galveston plan. I mentioned it also on the railroad episode because the railroad was the technological advancement that allowed the immigration to happen. I mentioned the immigration to the land of Israel on the Five Aliyot episode. Um, On the commemorative 250th episode, I discussed immigration as one of the major catalysts of change in the Jewish history of the modern era. So I have discussed different angles of it in the past, but I'm going to try to give a fresh perspective of it in this uh, in this one here. In the full disclosure, obviously, this is one of my favorite topics. So you'll bear with me. Um, And the the um, the um, it's it's it's. The reason that I'm coming back to it now is because of what I mentioned before—that this is the silent revolution. That's why it's so important. That's the main, the main uh, point of this Gural ruiz book. One of the greatest books I've ever read. It's, it's a fantastic book. It's—it's um, it's, uh, there's no leadership to this revolution. That's why. It, why is it silent? There's there's no organization. It's not organized. There's no infrastructure. There's no platform. There's no group decision to go embark on this this thing this immigration. There's no political party involved, there's no there's almost no media. There's a little bit of media. We'll talk about that also. There's basically no ideology, drop of ideology, drop of media, but mostly, you know, like I said, no leadership. In fact, the leadership of all stripes, not only religious, was for the most part against it. And yet, these rank-and-file individuals, with their individual decisions, created a far greater revolution in Jewish history and among the Jewish people than any other change of the last few centuries. Its impact on the Jewish world of today is it's transformative. It completely changed the Jewish world. And this is the major theme in story, and I can't overemphasize it. And it, it really brings us to another topic. It opens up another you know, uh, fun topic to discuss about whether history is deterministic or can it be channeled or led by individuals or leaders. Um, and it's a debate among historians. There are, the, there are those of the opinion that we need to focus on the biographies of heroes, of big people, because they're the ones who make change, who generate change, who, through their leadership skills and through their ideas... I remember hearing a lecture from Professor Emanuel Etkis uh, defending this this position because he spent his entire academic career profiling these type of people the shamtu he wrote on he wrote on the Vilna Goyen, or on the on Salanter on the Alta of the Balotanya. he focused on biographies of these great people leaders and he fe- felt that that's what that's what uh, you know creates history creates change That's one position, and I have to admit that I used to be uh, more on that side of the equation. I used to subscribe to that position. Or, the the other argument is, no, it's the circumstances of history. It's the context. It's the events. It's the big picture which provides a platform for history's players to operate, but individuals rarely actually shape history or events itself um and that's that's where I've you know more leaning towards in the last few years and it's a legitimate and endless debate and i gotta say that this topic is in the process of uh you know converting me from the bio leader hero based version of history to a more deterministic view of history and and this 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 story of immigration is 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 the big push this is what this is where you see it in its most profound sense it's a it's a profound story not only. Where there no leaders or organization or anything else in this endeavor, but for the most part, the leadership was against it for various different reasons. The Russian government, which is a form of leadership, um, they weren't fundamentally against it, but they put plenty of blocks in the way. The Jewish leadership, the Jewish uh, financial elite and somewhat secular elite in St. Petersburg was against it because they wanted everyone to be loyal Russian citizens and they should integrate into Russian society. The socialists were against it because you're just running away from the problem. You have to create a a revolution for workers in the country. The religious rabbis were primarily against it. There were some important exceptions, actually, to rabbis who were not against it, but that's another story. But they were against it because they were afraid of secularization. The Zionists were against it because they wanted, if there is any immigration, it should go to a specific place. And all these all this opposition from all the various different leadership, nothing worked. The masses decided on its own what's best for it. And that's what ultimately created the reality, nothing else. Um, and if that's not convincing of a deterministic view of history, then I don't know what it is. And this made the most important and largest impact on the Jewish world as we know it today. More than any other of the other revolutions or changes which were discussed in the Jewish, by the Jewish people in the modern era. By the time the Great Immigration was done in 1925, the Jewish people were completely transformed from what they had been before it began, a half a century earlier. They were they, they, the, the, they were now the largest Jewish community in the world, it was now the United States. It had been almost a non-existent community in 1875, besides for the German Jewish immigration, which I mentioned in the last episode. But it was basically non-existent, it was brand new. And then by the time the Great Immigration is over, it's the largest Jewish community in the world. And, and it changes the Jewish map forever. And especially in, 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 with, with hindsight, you know, with the post-war, that becomes the basis. Immigration to Israel, which is the story of immigration, from the Five Aliyot, which is during the time of the Great Immigration, creates the basis of these two of the largest Jewish communities today, to Israel and the United States. Um, and, and, um, this, this, and when I meet, mean, when I say determinism, and I've used the phrase a few times, you know, there's this, there's, it's like it has bad, a bad connotation it has, it's used, used in a Marxist context sometimes, the deterministic view of history and Marxism, the party, the leadership, the, the interpretation of the, of the show trials during the great purges of the old Bolsheviks, was to say well you know they have to have been guilty because they were on trial and and if Stalin was right then then Nikolai Bukharin must have be must be wrong because history is deterministic and history decides everything and you know there's an old uh, Soviet saying the future is certain it's the past that's unknown in in the Orwellian sense right the the the, the past can be changed at will right the, 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 you can decide whatever is convenient for now but the future is certain because of determinism. I don't mean it exactly in that way. what I mean it is that it's created on the ground. there are these processes that are irreversible uh, they may be long processes and they start from the grassroots they start on the ground and they just happen. Now furthermore, the Jews faced crisis in the 19th century. Especially in Eastern Europe, Russia is the largest Jewish community in the world in the 18th, in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, and all the way up to World War One, and um, it's and it's five million Jews living in Russia. It's 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 the largest in the world by a lot, the largest Jewish community, and and they're facing crisis not only in Russia but in many other places as well. There's a demographic explosion of the population, economic crisis, political questions of emancipation, not receiving equal rights, emancipation not achieving its goals by there still being modern anti-Semitism. There's religious crisis with the secularization of the Jewish people in Europe and beyond. There's educational issues, there's nationalism, emancipation, language, cultural It's existential questions about the Jewish future and Jewish identity in the modern era were constantly discussed in the pages of the growing Jewish press towards the end of the 19th century, in the pages of HaMelitz and HaShachar and HaMagid and HaKarmel and Halavanon, the religious newspaper, or Hatzfira, other papers, many others in other languages as well. And everyone's asking... Again, these are Jewish journalists in the Jewish press. What's the solution to the Jewish question? In retrospect, the question this question has very ominous and, and, and tragic connotations because Hitler decided to embark on a final solution. But a 100 years earlier, in the 19th century, the Jews and Jewish leadership across the spectrum of Jewish life, religious, secular, everything in between, were asking the question about the future of the Jewish people in light of the challenges they were confronted with Within the nineteenth century, what what is the what is the what's going to be the solution? What is the future of the Jewish people religiously, politically, um, economically, culturally? What, what what is Jewish identity? What is the how is the Jewish community going to look? And the number of solutions proposed by writers, thinkers, political leaders, religious leaders, political parties, editors, organizations, revolutionaries, and so on are so numerous that it would take all day just to enumerate and analyze the pros and cons of each one. But the point I want to make is this. None of them really worked out that well. And none of them provided a mass solution that a significant percentage of the Jewish world adopted. All except one. Immigration. And this was the only one that was not promoted by leaders, and was rather a silent revolution implemented by the masses on their own initiative. Now whether one likes or dislikes immigration, and many people dislike it because it caused assimilation it caused secularization it doesn't make a difference whether one likes it or not it's a reality it happened it's a historical reality, and it came about in this fashion so one may have opinions about it, but it's definitely from a historical perspective it's a it's a reality that that one has to confront and recognize. Uh, how it came about. So one can say with a pretty convincing argument and an element of confidence that where all others failed, or at least weren't all that very successful, the solution of the masses, without organization and without leadership, was the one that was wildly successful. And that's a fantastic story. It's a story of individuals, mostly anonymous ones, very often courageous, and almost always rank and file anonymous people who made it happen. Um... So the the what, what I another another thing I would like to you know give it some more context and also to focus on the immigration process itself. Um, although I mentioned that it goes from the eighteen seventies to nineteen twenty four, um, but the decade prior to World War One is the main decade where it intensifies. So that's the the main story is is the. Um, of of immigration is that last decade from 1904 to 1914 it's it's it um it, it just it's a flood of immigrants that that was unmatched in the 30 years before or really after the war because after the war it, it, after world war 1 it slowed down and and then it and then it came to a stop with the with the the um the Johnson Reed Act in in Congress in 1924 so world war 1 itself obviously cuts everything off because so shipping borders, you know, shipping companies, everything uh, um, uh, stopped then. Now, one of the interesting things about the immigration is that everyone likes to say, well, most of the Jews came from Russia, and in Russia, there are pogroms. So, A plus B equals C. Um, if, uh, if, if we, can, we can definitely... Correlation, obviously, is causal also. We know, of course, that co- correlation does not mean causal. <laughs> you have to prove cause. But um but uh, so there is correlation it's a partial cause but here's here's where it gets difficult um it can't only be be because of pogroms for several reasons and I'll just point out the most obvious one at the same time there was this mass jewish migration from russia there was at the same time in other areas of eastern europe give two examples galicia which is in the habsburg austro-hungarian empire In Romania, which is an independent country, there was probably the same level of immigration, of Jewish immigration. In other words, Jews were leaving Galicia and Romania during the same exact years and at the same pace as their Russian brethren in the Tsarist Russian Empire. Now, in Galicia, there were no pogroms. In Romania, there was plenty of anti-Semitism, but no pogroms. Galicia, there wasn't even that much anti-Semitism under the Habsburgs at that point. It was a bit enlightened. Um, and and they're leaving at the same time. So if it was because of the pogroms, then why would they be leaving so much from Galicia and Romania? So there's 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 there has to be other reasons as well. And as we'll see, it was mostly economic. Now, in order for to understand why this 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 was even possible, why it was possible, in order for now to anyone who's been an immigrant or knows an immigrant, I happen to have been an immigrant, so I know exactly what it is. But um, but uh, the, the, the idea of an immigrant you know, to pick oneself up and move to another country, to a new world, is, is a difficult process. So why would someone do that? And why would millions of people do it? So there was a confluence of three things that created the possibility of the great immigration. And those three things coming together as far as I know, has never repeated itself in world history. And that's why the Great Immigration was possible. And remember, there's millions of non-Jews coming at the same time. So these three things are kind of relevant for everyone, not just for Jews. But the Jewish people in Europe utilize this opportunity to its fullest. Number one, there were millions of people who wished to leave their country of origin. And we'll see why. Like I said, mainly economic reasons, but also anti-Semitism and, uh, and, uh, um, and um, pogroms. And they, they play a role as well. And of course, the military draft, which was a relatively new thing as well. And, uh, and there's all these things that are good. Probably one of the biggest reasons, demographic exposure. Uh, 19th century Europe saw a demographic explosion there's a huge spike you got to look at the graphs just see the spike in in growth of, of of the human population Jewish population grew at an even faster rate actually for a bunch of different reasons which I'm not going to get into either but um so now there's this you know all these mouths to feed and there's not enough jobs especially the pale of settlement where they're limited where they can go where they can live where they can move where they what what Business they can businesses they can have. Um, so there's millions of people who wish to leave their country of origin for a variety of reasons. That's one thing that exists that doesn't always exist in human history. Number two, there was the... And this is usually overlooked because we usually look at the place of origin and the destination. What about the means to get there? Um, so there's transportation which made it relatively possible to get not possible, relatively easy to get there across the world, which didn't exist before. So you have new new, new technology in shipping, steamships and ocean liners, uh, cheaper cost of buying tickets on these you know, transatlantic voyages. The ports in Germany, Bremerhaven and, and Hamburg, which are the two main ports, and the shipping companies that left it were modernized. Cheaper tickets, places to stay on the way, railroads with with you know good scheduling and cheap tickets to get from Russia to Bremerhaven and Hamburg in Germany to the ports. Um, media, which is another advancement in technology, which was able to report things. Mail services, which enabled people to hear from relatives who had already moved. Yeah, come, we'll arrange things for you. We'll send you tickets. We'll help you get jobs. Um, newspapers are able to report on, on things. Information, I mean the, the the way that information is transmitted. So all these technological advances in shipping, in the ports, in the railroads, in media and in information, in mail, all that comes together to create the means of actually making the move. Which again, this second point is usually overlooked. And the third point which is the main reason why the three have never come together again in world history, is that there was a country, the United States, and to a lesser extent some other countries, who was willing and even desired, they wanted it, they actively wanted, to absorb millions of immigrants seeking employment to develop its industry. Talking about it at a time, this is a crossroads of American history, where there's... there's there's huge new opportunities, the Industrial Revolution, a massive country that was underdeveloped for the most part, uh, factories opening, the textile industry is booming, and they need workers. They need they have they have poten- job potential for millions, and, and they need people to come. So they wanted people to come. There was such liberal liberal immigration policy in the United States in those days that you did not need a passport to enter the United States. Russian Jews leaving Russia needed a passport to leave Russia. The Tsar didn't allow them to leave unless they had a passport, which they had to apply for and pay money for, and a whole story is part of the process as well. But to get into the United States, they did not need a passport. They needed a health check to make sure they're not bringing any disease in. They needed some minimal funds. You needed to show that you had some cash and a ship ticket. They wouldn't allow you on the ship without a ticket. You had a health check, minimal, very minimal amount of funds, number, you know, just some, some money, some cash, and a ship ticket. You went in. You got into the United States. That's all you needed. You didn't need a visa. You didn't need a passport. You didn't need to schedule anything. You just walked in. And this window of opportunity existed Like I said, from 1870 to 1924, where all three of the above things came together and has never repeated itself since then. If you miss one of those three, the great immigration doesn't happen. Before 1870, the technology wasn't there. Number two, the transportation technology wasn't there. After 1924, number three was absent. Uh, there uh, There was no country that would allow millions of people to come in. Other times in world history, number one was absent. It doesn't mean, does not not at every juncture in history are there millions of people who want to leave their places of origin. So the Jewish people, especially in Russia, they utilized this opportunity and rare window that it offered, and they utilized it to its fullest. Millions of Jews moved across the world during this time, time period. Um, so... I got about a fifth of the way through my notes on immigration. So I hope to be able to return to this topic again and again and again and again here on this podcast until everyone's so bored of it that uh, that you tell me to stop. Um, So uh, but not 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 next episode, some some future time. We'll get back to it. There's a lot of interesting angles that I still haven't touched upon yet. Um, so this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, uh, sources, tours, trips, uh, sponsorships, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.